Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, today, we will be speaking to, how do you pronounce his name? Freddie DeBoer? DeBauer? DeBoer. DeBoer? De mm -hmm. Freddie DeBoer? Mm -hmm. Like a boar, like the animal? That's my understanding, yes. Boars are cool. Don't they look cool? See, this is where it, it should be Joe Rogan sitting next to me right now. Cause he'd be like, bro, boars are awesome. Yeah, sorry. You want to see I'm a clip of a boar eating an emu? To Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, you surpass him. Anyway, I digress. Um, so really interested to talk to him. Fascinating guy. The more I read of his stuff and the more I read about him, the more I was like, oh, he's, Ooh. A, he's an interesting thinker. Yeah, for sure. Well, also, not just interesting thinker. He's got some interesting stuff that's happened in his life that uh, he's remarkably open in many ways about his shortcomings and mental illness and all sorts of stuff. So uh, there's plenty of stuff to talk to him uh, about with politics and plenty of stuff to talk to him about with personal life stuff. Um, it's funny. You know who's a big fan of uh, Freddie is Sagar. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Sagar has kind of a soft spot for like like real Marxists. He likes uh, he likes people who I mean Freddie has a very strong like class. Well, he calls frame. himself an old school Marxist. Yeah, that's how he defines himself. Yeah. So uh, when I told Sagar that we were having Freddie on, he was like, "Oh, tell him I'm a big fan." Funny enough, there was one political compass test I took where I was described as a classic Marxist. I believe was the phrasing. Hmm. Um, there's another one where I was libertarian socialist. I, I mean, it's all over the place depending on which one you take, but one, I was a classic Marxist and I was surprised myself. I was like, oh, yeah. really? Yeah, <laughs> so. I want to ask him about his ideology. His parents were radicals, so he came up with sort of like, you know, that was in the ether around him. My parents were not. <laughs> My dad was this apolitical slash semi-political weirdo who the only time he would hear anything about politics was listening to Rush Limbaugh in the car. On My like parents the were very home. like, I mean, your mom as well, but my parents were very like local community active, but mm. in a very sort of not partisan. My dad was more conservative. Just because of guns, though, right? Guns. I mean, in general, he has a little bit of like a libertarian bent to him. He thought Ronald Reagan was a great president. Um, my mom, she comes from a family that uh, like a lot of union you know, background in her family uh, and was a teacher. So she was always a little more like left leaning, but um, neither one. We didn't talk about politics in the house growing up at all. My mom is the classic PMC that we always deride, professional middle class. Your mom is lovely. She uh, she went, uh, so she grew up in like a, a Republican-ish household, but it truly was like Northeastern Republican, which does mean like significantly more moderate than, you know, Southern Republican, if you will. Yeah, um, the so, Rockefeller Republican. So more on social issues, yeah. more understanding and all that stuff. But she made the full flip in the Obama years because she looked at Palin and she was like, yeah, no. <laughs> and she, she ran into Obama's arms. Yeah, my mom is definitely firmly in the Democratic camp now as well. I think that's happening with a lot of women, older women. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think, I mean, my mom had definitely voted for Republicans before, although she, tended, she didn't like Bill Clinton. My mom was voted one for person. W. Bush. Oh. oh. So my dad voted, I think, pretty lockstep Republican up until the Trump era. And my dad's big issue with with Trump is my dad is a scientist. And he's like, this guy doesn't care about facts, mm, data, science right, yeah. like the, he, he can't he can't handle that. But I don't think he voted for Hillary. I think he voted for who were the other ones? that was like Evan McMullen. He might, I think he McMullen. 
Johnson or maybe Gary Johnson. Okay, or... McMuffin is the hilarious. I don't think one, he voted for Hillary or Trump, and then I do think he voted for Biden, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. So my mom went Obama 08. I actually don't. She may have went Romney in 2012 because he was very, you know, like Thurston Howell the Third. Like I'm a serious person, and she's like, oh yes, you're a serious person. So she may she have had gone... that like Massachusetts background and everything. Yeah, too, the Northeast right. Republican. But thing. she wasn't like it was a it was a thought for her. Like hmm, who do I vote for? Uh, you know, th this is she's indicative of somebody who's not terribly ideological in how she approaches mm -hmm. politics. But uh, when Trump came around. She was like, not in a million fucking years, number one. But she didn't vote for Hillary either because she hated Hillary. Yeah. Uh, but then in 2020, she voted for Biden with a smile on her face because hmm. she was like, I got to get this guy out of here. This guy's crazy. Yeah. So all, all over the place and weird. Anyway, I don't know how we got on this conversation. <laughs> but uh, there is, uh, speaking of the PMC, well, it's not middle class, professional, rich assholes. Uh, Tell me what's going on with Hillary. Well, speaking of, yeah, the Clintons. So uh, Hillary Clinton back in the news because she is uh, hawking her expertise in a new master class. Expertise. Mm-hmm. Expertise. I think the course is supposed to be on, like, perseverance and grit and determination and those sorts of things, which, first of all, reflect on how far you have to have fallen to go from thinking you're going to be the president of the United States twice to doing to a QVC infomercial for yourself people <laughs> to listen to your master class yeah. like hawking your services there that's piece number one piece number two is this has been making the rounds um, in one of her master classes she reads the victory speech that she wrote and of course never delivered and I guess it's the first public reading of that speech, famously, they didn't even write a concession speech. I know. Yeah. And well, neither did Romney, to be fair. A lot of these assholes are convinced they're going to win. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but they, and they were popping champagne and that. They did I mean, it in the middle of the day. They when the thought, votes were still rolling in, they were like, we got this. They thought this was a, a done deal. And uh, so anyway, she reads a portion of, uh, of the, the victory speech that was not to be. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. I think about my mother every day. Sometimes I think about her on that train. I wish I could walk down the aisle. I wish I could walk down the aisle and find the little wooden seats where she sat, holding tight to her even younger sister. Alone, terrified. She doesn't yet know how much she will suffer. She doesn't yet know she will find the strength to escape that suffering. That is still a long way off. The whole future is still unknown. And she stares out at the vast country moving past her. Okay. She Hold on. She goes on to say, um, "You will. I, she will never know that you will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States." Is the end of that little parable. Okay. Uh, so for, that's the first time I saw that. I didn't see this in prep. This is the first time I'm watching that. That that, that didn't go as I expected. Number one. Number two. This is the same exact thing that I remember from Kamala's speech at the DNC when she was picked for vice I president. I had the same thought. Because it was literally the whole thing was about me, the gloriousness of me and my family. Yes, we're a special ilk. And it's like, 
this is kind of why you lost because you can't even fake it in terms of like this isn't about me this is about you guys that's why i'm here i'm yeah. just a vessel for the will of the people i'm a vessel for the democratic will of the people and she she couldn't even muster herself to fake it and i do think that's incredibly indicative now on the whole like getting emotional thing look i get it P you know people feel you know most people many people feel uh you know these sorts of things about their family and their personal story and all that stuff but most people also have the decency to understand that like people don't really give a fuck about your story bro they want health care they want higher wages <laughs> you know like th this is the problem with hillary well it's also there's two pieces to that story one is just remembering your mom and of course that's going to make a, a person emotional, you know, but the, that the punchline of the story is, and she's gonna know her daughter, you know, is the president of the United States. It kind of makes your point of, it's a little telling that that's the part that's emotional to her. And then the other part of this is like, there's just no, never been any reflection of the fact that you are the person most directly responsible for us having four fucking years of Donald Trump and possibly eight years of Donald Trump the way. And instead, and they write about this in that book, Shattered, instantly when uh, they figure out that, you know, Hillary's lost, they're in meetings to decide how they're going to frame this all. How to spin it. How to right. spin it to yeah. the public. Mm -hmm. And their spin was wildly successful. Because what did they land on? They said, we're going we're gonna to blame Comey. We're going to blame Russian misinformation. And that sent the whole media down this rabbit hole for years. And now that we're sort of moving beyond the Steele dossier and the P-tapes and the, that madness, the extreme madness of Russiagate, but that obsession, and this is going to dovetail with the next piece we're going to talk about, over misinformation, that comes directly from... Hillary herself and from her paid campaign operatives who decided that they were going to make that the cover story for why they lost. And it's not just to protect Hillary. It's to protect the entire way of the Democratic Party over decades, really starting in earnest with her husband. It was this year was the, um, the or this week, rather, was the 28th anniversary of NAFTA, totally emblematic of the way that they intentionally shifted the Democratic Party away from a working class base and towards this, you know, rising coalition of the ascendant that they thought would entrench themselves into power and would enable them to be able to raise money from corporations. And so they didn't want to they didn't want to dig into any of that because that leads to a very different place than having freaking Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House right now. So uh, I'm actually going to go even a step further than, than what you're saying. You did allude to this a little bit, but. She's talking about, oh, her and her family or whatever. Let me explain something to you. The Clintons are more responsible for the current state of this country than anybody else, than any other individual family, because it was Bill Clinton. It was the new Democrat neoliberal era. Mm -hmm. It was what's called the, the DLC, DLC the, mm -hmm. the Democratic Leadership Conference. And for those of you who don't know the, the details of that, it's very simple. What happened was the Democratic Party took a look at the Republicans and saw that uh, they were doing colossal amounts of fundraising. And they said, well, how the hell could we get in on that game? And to that point in history, Democrats largely took money from certain constituencies, namely lawyers, um, unions, including teachers unions. That was their base. That's who they went to for their funding. With the DLC and Bill Clinton, they came in and said, no, 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 we're a different kind of Democrat. We're not these crazy far lefty Democrats. We're new Democrats. And so we are also now going to start taking money from big pharma 
from the military, military industrial complex, from Wall Street and big financial institutions. And it is as a direct result of that, there's a through line directly to Donald Trump winning. 100%. It's the neoliberal rot and the Democratic Party standing for nothing substantive that led to the rise of a fake populist like Donald Trump. So she's directly responsible. Now, a couple more points. Um, yeah, the whole misinformation thing. She just gave an interview to Rachel Maddow not that long ago, mm -hmm. and that was still the thing she's harping away on. Oh, over the, and over again. The current state of affairs in the country right now, she looks at it, she's not talking about climate change, she's not talking about corruption, she's not talking about low wages, she's not talking about any of these other substantive problems, the endless wars that she helped uh, foster. She's still talking about misinformation and disinformation being the biggest problem facing this country. So in other words, the problem is you have nefarious foreign actors and just bad, evil right-wing people who are spreading misinformation and, and creating this mass delusion in half the country. And so we need to control the bad people in order to get the good people back in power. It's a very black and white worldview of like, they're bad, we're good. How do we clamp down on the bad people saying the bad things, purge them from social media, and then we can you know rise to glory again. It's a very nihilistic worldview. Well, it's a couple things. Number one, it's very convenient because then you can say, yeah, it's it's the bad people over there. It has nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me, right? And the fact that there has been no reckoning over the fact, look, for all the people who, like me, justifiably hated Donald Trump, this is the person most proximate to giving us Donald Trump. And as you point out, and as I've pointed out, her family helping to architect that moment that created the opening for him to start with. But also, think about the fact her campaign funded the Steele dossier. I mean, you want to talk about disinformation and misinformation. Right, yeah. She is one of the worst offenders in terms of putting false conspiratorial information in front of the American public that the media went right along with. Not to mention, I mean, obviously, you could go back to the way she helped with the uh, buildup to the Iraq war and that misinformation, disinformation campaign. So the people oftentimes who cry the loudest about this stuff are some of the worst offenders. That's exactly right. Mainstream media are some of the biggest purveyors of misinformation. And it, they've always been. That's the thing. It's not even like a new recent phenomenon. It, 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 you know, the recent iterations like Russiagate, like you're talking about, those are the clearest, most recent examples. Yeah. But I mean, literally the buildup to the Iraq war was because the mainstream media was just a stenographer to the State Department and the yeah. CIA and whatever they said they ran with. And so if they said, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction and we can't wait for the evidence to be in the form of a mushroom cloud, that, you know, the they would dutifully go out and report it as if they're doing journalism, as if they're doing reporting. And then they have the nerve to turn around and say, get these QAnon people offline. Now, I'm not downplaying the negative effects of any right-wing conspiracies and QAnon stuff. I mean, I do think that stuff is terrible and I do think it has negative consequences. But you cannot, if you are even bigger purveyors of misinformation, arguably that have an even worse uh, problem with the body politic, you can't turn around and point your finger at them and act like, you know, these are the people that we need to control. Well, it just reveals the game. Um, and you and I point this out in terms of the right. It's not that they care about free speech and censorship, whatever. They just want to be the censors. Correct. Yeah. They want to be the ones controlling what's allowed to be said. And it's the same thing with people like Hillary Clinton and The New York Times and other people who have gone all in on this misinformation, disinformation thing. They're just mad that they don't have 100% control over the narrative and the space anymore. They're, they see some competition over here from independent actors and that they can't con totally control the storyline anymore. That's what they're really reacting to because if they actually cared about truth and accuracy in reporting, there would have been some sort of um, some sort of come to Jesus around Russiagate, some sort of analysis of all the ways that they went wrong. And 
the rock war, the financial crisis, the list goes on and on, there would have been some sort of self-reflection and tried ability to correct, but none of that ever happened, which just shows you Hillary Clinton and all the rest of the people who took her lead, again, she explicitly decided this was gonna be the direction for the Trump years, all the people that took her lead, oftentimes the worst actors in this regard. And, and honestly, it's a feature and not a bug. Like, they don't even care if they're lying and they're wrong and it's conspiracy theories. They don't care. But, you know, they do it anyway. Now, final point. Um, this reminded me of the happy birthday future president tweet that Hillary had, mm. which was arguably oh. now the funniest tweet of all time. Um, and the list of stuff that uh, Hillary has blamed. Russia, Comey. Jill Stein, Bernie bros, sexism, racism. Am I missing anything else? There's got to be at least two or three more that I'm blanking on at the moment. But uh, thank you, Hillary, for your master class. Next time you might want to do a master class on something that you're actually good at, like losing. <laughs> Just tell us what not to. Tell us what you did and let's do the opposite. That would right. be the most beneficial use yeah. of time. But actually, the misinformation uh, subject is very relevant to the other piece that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so um, I noticed this the other day. Now, Twitter has a new CEO. I covered that on my show. I think you covered that on your mm -hmm. show as well. Yeah. Um, now, we were all very critical of Jack, rightly so. Um, I, I mean, I think the classic example that the right brings up, this is a point that I think is actually fair, is they're like, well, Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter and the Taliban isn't. So <laughs> tell me what your, like, standards are, bro. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, the Taliban didn't do any mean tweets, so they get to stay on, but if they just beheaded somebody in the backyard. It's like, well, that wasn't on Twitter, so it's okay. Come on, it's a little it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. No fan of Trump, despise Trump, but that is a little ridiculous. So that's one example. There were a number of things that as Jack was head of uh, Twitter, he either wasn't able to to implement the values that he nominally believes in because he says he's in favor of free speech and all this stuff. Um, or he just doesn't actually believe in it. So there's plenty to criticize there, but it looks like the person who's taken over for him is actually worse. Um, I, I'm blanking on the guy's name now, but it, it doesn't really matter. He has this quote where he says he's openly, uh, effectively against freedom of speech. And so I read that he's not bound by the First Amendment. Right. That was his quote. It's actually worse than that in full context. I, re I read the whole thing. Yeah, no, I that's actually not cherry picking. That's actually. No, I know, because yeah. I read the quote on Twitter and I was like, I'm not sure this is. I'm sure because there was a dot, dot, dot in there in, in ellipses. And I was mm -hmm. like, is that what it's called ellipses? Yeah. I was like, OK, well, I got to go read the whole thing because they could be misleading. There. I read the whole thing and I was like, oh, this is even worse. I read in, the in entire interview. Yeah. yeah. In context is um, worse. So there have been two giant Twitter purges now. And of course the argument is, well, misinformation and disinformation. And well, we're just getting rid of accounts that are linked to Iran and Russia and China and whatever. And it's like, first of all, on that point alone, so are you gonna get rid of accounts linked to the State Department? Because the State Department lies every day before breakfast. <laughs> no, seriously, like this, we're talking about whether it's the State Department, the CIA, the Pentagon, people affiliated with them. I mean, Russiagate was a, a gigantic hoax and they were all pushing it on the country. They lies into wars nonstop. I mean, this is a matter of record. And we're the world's sole superpower. We arguably do the most damage around the world. We support militarily 73% of the world's dictatorships. We have 900 military bases around the world. I mean, Noam Chomsky said it best. If the Nuremberg laws were upheld, every post-World War II president would be hanged. So if you're saying, look, it's, it's hostile state actors that do nefarious things, so we got to pull them down. Okay, when are you going to purge people from the State Department? When are you going to purge people from the CIA or the Pentagon? Are you going to do that? No, you're not going to do that because you're incredibly biased in your worldview. So just in principle, I disagree with that. Just in principle, I disagree with it. Even if you have an account that's tied to the Iranian government or whatever, are they not allowed to speak? Are they not allowed to give their perspective? And guess what? I got news for everybody. I've been covering this Iran deal 
14 ways to Sunday. I've covered it closely than arguably anybody else in, in old media or new media. And the narrative that comes from Iran is actually far closer to the truth. And that's, that's not hard to imagine because Joe Biden, when he ran, said, I'm going to jump right back in the Iran deal. Then he got it and he's like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're going to continue uh, Trump's path of ripping up the deal. So it's just a fact that when you look at it objectively, they were screwed in the deal in the exact same way they were screwed when the CIA did a coup of their democratically elected leader, Mohammed Mossadegh, and put in the Shah in the 1950s. So, again, these are unfortunate facts of history that they want to bury. Uh, but now comes the new part of the story. So one of the this is just indicative of how terrible the purge is. Yeah. One of the accounts that was purged is the Maxwell trial tracker at tracker trial was uh, what it's called over 500,000 Twitter followers. Wow. The whole existence of this account was we're going to follow the Gislaine Maxwell trial and that's it. We're going to give you factual updates on it and that's it. And they purged it. They got rid of it on what planet. Is this protecting from misinformation and disinformation? I got information for my show from them because they're following the trial and they found out they were the original reporters that I saw yeah. that, that said Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were just mentioned in, in the courtroom. Yep. How can they just purge this and act like, what, you think we don't see this? You think we don't have eyes? You think we don't realize how biased this is? You think we don't realize how big of a crackdown on free speech and freedom of information this is? It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it wasn't just them. There was another account that was the Nancy Pelosi portfolio tracker that what they would do is they would post her stock trades um, publicly available, you know, based on her disclosures. That one also got suspended. Um, similar, if not at the same time, similar time. I literally don't know how you justify it. Well, I mean, usually you. there's like a fig leaf of something. And look, to be clear, I haven't followed every single tweet that these accounts have put out, but I have no idea how you even have a fig leaf of a justification here. Oh, well, they will say, they will just say misinformation or disinformation. But really what's going on is they are protecting elites. That's what they're doing. Yeah. In the same way, I mean, this is a much less egregious example, although I hate this too. There's like when YouTube took away the dislikes. Why do YouTube take away the dislikes? Well, literally every video that was posted of Joe Biden would get like mass downvoted. The freaking Fauci documentary where they give him a giant fluff piece got like 95% dislikes <laughs> or something like that. So you look at that, what happened, well, I have no doubt that what happened was establishment media, establishment politicians, people with power and authority were getting embarrassed and they're in rooms with the CEOs of all these various companies, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, whatever. And so they probably talked to them like, look, we got to do something about this. And this is the solution they came up with. We'll just take away the dislikes. That's so all you see is the likes. And so people will publicly have no idea. Now, by the way, there are practical implications to this, too. I talked about this on my show. But sometimes you have an engineering problem or you're trying to put together a piece of furniture or some shit and you want to YouTube it to figure out, hey, well, you know, how do I do this? And it used to be if you go to it, you could see a video is 80 percent downvoted and you're like, I'm not going to waste my time yeah, watching this. this. They got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Now you can't because you just I don't know if, if it's good or bad. There's no indication of it. So. I mean, it's just, it's so transparent. It's so see-through. We know what you're doing, and nobody likes it. And the saddest thing is, all these other, you know, competition sites that pop up, they don't even really have a prayer. That's the sad reality. Yeah, well, and uh, we were, we were kind of talking about this. Um, they don't have a prayer, and they also, you know, it's very easy for them to get sucked into just being a place for right-wing people. Oh, that's what happened with Gab. They're like, conversation. Gab is like, we're the free speech alternative to Twitter, and then it literally became Nazi central, like, over the course of a couple months. Right, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I think, look, it's hard because the whole benefit of a social media platform is the people that are there. 
So if you have on Twitter, if everybody's already on Twitter, and they are. It's, it's sort of a natural monopoly, honestly, right. these yeah. social media companies. A lot of people argue that that's why, um, rather than focusing on breaking them up, better to have them basically be public goods Correct. and heavily regulated that's because right. they are, in, in a certain sense, like natural monopolies because their benefit comes from the number of people that are on them. So the... So far, it has not been an effective strategy to start something else and expect that you're going to have mass migration, especially with Twitter. You know, the thing about about Twitter is it's where all the elites are. And so even Trump, when he's booted off of Twitter, makes a huge difference in terms of what he's able to put out there. Look at Milo. What out, happened out to Milo? <laughs> you tell Milo, me what did happen to Milo. Milo is now on a Christian, you know, home shopping network trying to hawk shitty statues We've of Mary. We've watched way too much yeah. of that. No, I, well, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was yeah, hilarious. but like th that's an example of deplatforming, even though I'm against it in principle, it absolutely, it quote unquote, works. I mean, Milo yeah. was a huge personality, but listen, if the president of the United States can be hobbled by deplatforming, Look on the on the one hand, it's been really nice having him sort of push yeah. push to no the side. Tweets. Maybe I should nuke North Korea. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't but, do that. Yeah, that's been kind of nice yeah. for everybody's mental health, but it's also really scary because if I mean anyone can be disappeared by just being pushed down to the public square. This is how people communicate. This is you know this is the public square now, and so for the CEO to not only say. I'm not going to be bound by the First Amendment, but then to immediately act on that philosophy is extremely troubling. True. I, I want Jack back. Same. Better. Jack is currently um, meditating on top of a Nepalese mountain with a naked hundred-year-old man. <laughs> that's what he's doing. Living his best life. Uh, and he's bathing in kombucha. That's that's what Jack's doing. On that note, let's get to the guest, Freddie DeBoer, um, author of uh, The Cult of Smart, fantastic book about our education system and some of the lies that we tell ourselves about education and about uh, students in general. Uh, he also has a fantastic daily newsletter on his Substack. Let's get right to it. Welcome, Freddie. So glad to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Um, give our audience, if they're not familiar with your work, a little bit of an intro to Freddie, sort of... Uh, first, tell them where they can subscribe to your Substack. I'm a subscriber, and I enjoy your work quite a bit. But also, a little bit about what you consider your political ideology to be. Sure, yeah. Um, my Substack is freddydebor.substack.com, uh, which is easy to find if you Google it. Um, I'm someone who grew up in a socialist and leftist tradition in a uh, socialist and leftist household Um you know, my father's middle name was Eugene for Eugene Debs. My uh, paternal grandfather was the target of McCarthyite bills uh, as a professor in uh, in Illinois. Uh, my grandmother won the uh, uh, ACLU Lifetime Achievement Award for her work in civil rights and civil liberties. Um, and I come from that kind of a background. I also grew up at Wesleyan University, so I'm, uh, you know, ensconced in a very sort of lefty tradition. Um, I have a PhD, so I've been through academia. Um, but I think that um, uh, <clears throat> there has been a tremendous amount of uh, bad strategic and ideological decisions on the left for essentially my entire political lifetime, um, and it's resulted in uh, a lot of failure. So I'm frequently in the position of criti uh, critiquing the left. Um, and of course, if you critique the left a lot, people will say that you've moved right. But to me, um, everything that I say is just a statement of pretty basic and fairly orthodox Marxist principles, but applying them to where the left is right now. So, Freddie, uh, I, I want to 
talk a lot about that a little bit later. Uh, but first, let's compare biographies. My dad listened to Rush Limbaugh in his car. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my family history for you. <laughs> um, so, uh, by the way, I, that doesn't mean I'm a right winger. I don't know if you know anything about me. I just, just want to throw that out there. Uh, first, I want to talk about your book, The Cult of Smart. Uh, this is interesting to me for a number of reasons. It's, it's titled The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. And um, I'll give a little summary of it. There's one aspect in which I totally agree with you, and then there's others I have uh, questions about. So mm -hmm. the general idea is that there, there are innate differences in intelligence, and it would serve us well to acknowledge that when it comes to the education system. Is that a fair summation? Yeah. Um, I mean, the I, to, I guess the way that I would express that is that um, as someone who at the time was writing a dissertation about um, uh, educational assessment and as someone who has been a teacher in many different contexts and levels for a long time, um, I was looking at a, a situation where the policy discussion was we can't push all these people through the pipeline, the college pipeline, to uh, you know, stable middle-class lifestyles. As I say in the book, every president since at least Ronald Reagan has said that college is the key to solving our socioeconomic problems. Um, and it's just, it's failing. It's been failing for decades, but we keep pushing people into the pipeline. And so the basic idea of the book is like, you know, part of the reason that uh, people are not surviving in the pipeline uh, is because uh, we're asking them to do things that are not suiting their particular skills and their particular uh, uh, mental makeup, their their strengths as human beings, so that rather than trying to force everyone into a pipeline that's not working for them, we should invent other pipelines uh, to diversify the paths forward for people, because college for everyone has been a disastrous policy regime. So, so in the nature versus uh, nurture debate, I mean, obviously this touches heavily on that. And I, I, I mean, overall, it's a very complex debate. There are plenty of things that are a mix of nature and nurture. There are plenty of things that are purely nurture and there are plenty of things that are purely nature. Um, you know, I have a somewhat unorthodox view on the left, which I think is similar to what you're espousing, which is, mm -hmm. you know, nature is maybe slightly dominant and then nurture pokes at it. And again, that is relatively unorthodox in, in left-wing circles. Uh, but I guess my question is, so there was a, a, a Harvard psychologist who wrote a book in 1983 called Frames of Mind, and it's about mm. intelligence. And he breaks it down into eight different kinds of intelligence, spatial intelligence, bodily intelligence, musical intelligence, linguistic intelligence, logical uh, intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, and naturalistic intelligence. Would you agree with me that even though we're talking about innate differences and even though we're talking about nature perhaps overriding nurture in many respects, um, since there are so many different kinds of intelligence, it's almost uh, not a nuanced enough picture and not a complete picture to sort of use the typical, you know, like right wing framing of like IQ. And then that's the end of the conversation. Yeah. So uh, this is something where a lot of times people frame this as a criticism of me um, or of, my, of the book. That is. Um, but it's something that I agree on. You know, people will come to me and they say, but there's many different ways to be intelligent is one way that they put it. Another way to put it is that like the concept of intelligence or, or being educated, et cetera, are sort of socially constructed and culturally situated. Um, I don't disagree with that at all, right? Um, the problem is, right, again, this is all supposed to be like commenting from the position of, uh, you know, our entire socioeconomic system right now, the only reliable path to get people um, into stable, uh, well-paying jobs um, with the collapse of the American labor movement 
the demise of uh, uh, manufacturing and industrial uh, employment in this country. Um, the only path we have is college and it's not working for people. Um, neoliberal capitalism has a definition of what skills it finds valuable. Mm. I don't think that those skills are inherently or intrinsically or transcendently more intelligent or more real or more valuable, but I don't get to make that decision, right? So when people say, well, you say some people have a predisposition to be smarter than others, um, <clears throat> but there's many different ways to be intelligent. My response is yes, but like the system is not recognizing those many different ways to be intelligent. And as long as the system has this narrow uh, focus on like what is a valuable skill, such as the skill to code, right? Like a particular kind of raw cognitive processing that is applicable to many things in 2021 where it wasn't uh, applicable a thousand years ago. Um, of course, that's socially mediated and situated, but that's what the system is rewarding right now. And if the goal is to turn everyone right into the kind of like Stanford graduate Google employee who thrives under those kind of definitions of what is uh, <clears throat> like a de definition of being smart, then we're bound to fail. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good uh, point. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, here's the funny thing about this is you're saying something that is both very controversial and very not because yeah. when you explained it, I was like, I mean, most sense. people <laughs> look, I've got three kids and it's very obvious, like not only what their different strengths are and that they just can't look, they have the same parents, but they all are very, very different and have very different intelligences from day one too. from it day one. Yeah, I mean, right. their little personalities and the things they're interested in and the way their minds worked are largely baked in and I have very little to do with it outside of the genetic material that I provided. And you can even see very clearly like, oh, this one is so much like my mom and oh, this one is so much like my dad and all of those things. And I think if you talk to any person, they feel the same way. It's very clear when you have kids in particular, mm -hmm. but there's a, very, a, a big discomfort with talking about that. Partly it's because of the reasons that you're laying out. All of this education discourse, whether it's on the right with, you know, the No Child Left Behind stuff, whether it's with Obama and Arnie Duncan, if you maintain the mythology that, oh, if we just do the pull the right levers with our education system and if we just yell at the teachers enough, then every child is going to be able to succeed. Well, that's a lie. I mean, it's just a lie. There are not enough slots in the meritocracy for everyone to win. That's the whole point of the meritocracy is that some people get to be at the top and some people are forced to be at the bottom. But you can maintain this sort of mythology if you don't acknowledge that there are some people whose intelligences do not have market value yep. according to the current neoliberal framework that we have. But the other place that people get uncomfortable, and this part I understand, is they say, well, <clears throat> if we talk about these innate differences, you're going to end up in some Charles Murray bell curve kind of situation, and we're going to end up talking about eugenics. And there's a, an assumption that that's like an inevitable outcome of talking about innate genetic differences. So how do we keep, how do we have this conversation with not, without ending at racism and eugenics? So there's a few things that we should bear in mind, right? The first thing to bear in mind is that like um, the term eugenics has become, you know, generalized to the point of absolute meaninglessness. Eugenics is not the observation that different individual human beings have different individual genetic endowments that predispose them to be one thing or another, right? Um, 
eugenics is an attempt uh, from up top to uh, engineer a different genome across the population through things like forced sterilization or even like, through things like you know, top-down selective breeding, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the risks of that happening in the United States are very small. I understand why people are um, sensitive about this. Uh, I'm sensitive about it too. One thing to remind everyone is that like, none of us has the right to get very pure about this because the process of mate selection for human beings is in many ways the process of selecting for someone whose genetics you would like to, to share in the production of children, right? If you are a typical 30-year-old liberal who, you know, uh, is the kind of person who accuses my book of being a eugenicist book, but you go on Bumble and you are pawing through people and you notice, for example, oh, this guy's, you know, uh, got a master's degree and he makes $125,000 and this is, you know, marriage material. One of the things that you are doing, I mean, it, which is literally baked into our genome, is you are selecting for, right, the future sort of attributes that your potential progeny will have. Right. Like we are always practicing if we're going to use this extremely loose definition of eugenics, we're always practicing uh, eugenics uh, at the micro level as we continue to sort ourselves. And in fact, this has obvious macro uh, outcomes, the most obvious of which uh, is assortative mating, which is um, there's tons of research on this over the course of the past, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, um, the number of people, the, the degree to which people are sorting by education in the marriage market has dramatically increased. So that like in the 1950s, someone with a PhD was no more likely to marry another person with a PhD than someone with just a high school diploma. That's become extremely rare. And people, if you, you know, come to the neighborhood I'm in right now, Park Slope, Brooklyn, right? A bunch of sort of, you know, left liberals, um, but they're all selecting each other based on these things, right? So we can't get too holy about it. Um, yeah. You know, an empirical observation never implies a necessary policy or political response, right? Like so many people I talk to say, um, you know, this must end up in eugenics. And I say, well, you know, must it? Because like my book, you know, the second half of the book describes what I think is like a humane uh, progressive egalitarian way in which to acknowledge the reality that we're all, you know, good at different things and bad at different things. Some of that certainly, you know, is a, a product of our genome. And how can we make society fairer and better? Um, I just find the notion that like, we as a society, if we acknowledge any genetic influence, on behavioral or cognitive traits at all, like we will necessarily slip into eugenics. Um, it's just an incredibly uh, overly pessimistic view of human nature, right? We decide the kind of society that we wanna have. I mean, the whole point of the book is that once you acknowledge, right, that there are things that we can't control that have deep influence on our performance within uh, the labor economy, within the, the meritocracy or whatever you wanna call it, um, it really helps to bolster the case for something like socialism or at least a redistributive state, because if you don't earn it, if it's not under your control, then you have less right to say that I need to keep this and that person can't have it, right? That's a perfectly consistent, logically sort of philosophical way to look at this. So we just have to choose the good way, not the bad way. So, uh, Crystal, to take a crack at your 
uh, question about, you know, how do we avoid these ends? I actually, uh, I think that the answer is sort of embedded in the thing that I, I asked Freddie before, which is, because I remember watching these like race and IQ debates on YouTube mm. years back. And I always found the entire conversation a little absurd because I'm like, you guys have such a narrow definition of what you mean by intelligence. Mm. And so mm. if you broaden out the scope to be the eight types of intelligence that I just described, the whole conversation just uh, looks absurd. Well, not to mention, um, I know you argue in the book too, it's not that you're saying nurture has nothing to do with it. Of course, mm. socioeconomic status and trauma and those sorts of things, which disproportionately impact um, black people in this country, of course those have an impact on um, educational attainment as well. So just wanna be clear about what you're arguing mm. here too. You're not saying nature is absolutely everything and nurture has mm. no place. You're just saying, you all are pretending that nature has nothing to do with it, and that's justifying ultimately what is a very unfair end for millions and millions of people. Yeah, so I'm going to use like an overly cute analogy that I have developed, which is just that like, okay, you take a bunch of children, right, um, and you get, have a jumping contest. You see which child can jump the highest. And for the record, like I don't think that like a jumping contest is particularly more like arbitrary or unfair than the meritocratic system that we have. Um, you take these children, say, okay, we're gonna have a jumping contest. But for whatever reason, you decide to saddle a bunch of children with weight belts that weigh them down. And you give some kids like, I don't know, springy shoes so they can jump higher, right? In other words, there's systematic advantage and disadvantage within those populations, right? You then take your averages of how people jump. It would not surprise anyone to learn right, that the kids who are weighed down with weight belts jump less high on average than the kids who don't have anything. And the kids with springy shoes jumps higher on average than the other two groups, right? But that doesn't mean that genetics is not at play at all. In fact, there's a, a strong genetic component to how high you can jump. We know that empirically. And uh, some people in the weight belt group are going to be so gifted naturally at jumping that they can be among the, the top jumpers in the whole thing, even with that disadvantage. Some people in the springy shoes uh, group are going to be so uh, naturally untalented that even with their advantage, they inevitably perform worse than the average person in the bottom group, right? So within those groups, genetics is asserting uh, a particular force on their performance. But across those groups, right, the, the difference in averages is entirely environmental, right? And so I think this is one of the things that I just think people hear genes, race, education, et cetera, and they immediately assume that any assertion of a genetic basis or a genetic influence on things like performance in the classroom necessarily implies that you think that the difference between um, you know, black uh, performance in, in the classroom is necessarily genetic. I have to say, like, I just, the, the, the primary core of my objection to the idea that racial differences in educational outcomes are genetic is an empirical uh, rejection. In other words, like it's scientific. Like it's not like this sort of pre-empirical thing where I say, I'm gonna forbid this 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 outcome or possibility because it's racist. Um, I, I just think the data clearly indicates that it's wrong, right? And one of the things that bothers me is that the people who are so afraid of even talking about this often seem to me to be kind of suspicious that it is true, right? Mm. Like the fact that the fact that they're so afraid of looking, right, to me indicates that they assume that it's correct. Mm. Um, 
the average black family in the greater Boston area has a uh, median net worth of eight dollars. Okay, not not eight thousand or eight hundred or eighty. It's eight dollars, right? Um, it seems to me to be entirely responsible and compelling and convincing to say uh, there's underlying genetic variation within that group so that some of these black kids who are suffering under that poverty do significantly better than some who don't, right? You can chop up any group you want into the most specific demographic, you know, uh, hierarchy or, uh, or, or categories that you want to. Within those categories, there's always going to be uh, much larger differences than the average differences, right? Because the individual difference matters. But it, it would be foolish to look at that situation and then look at black uh, uh, children's performance in Boston area schools and conclude, oh yeah, it's because they're genetically inferior. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about solutions because if you were to ask me to give like a Cliff Notes Band-Aid version based on the conversation that we've had so far, um, my initial instinct would be, First thing is very simple, a form of trade school. So you don't just force everybody directly into, you know, college and then cross your fingers and hope it's going to work out. And then beyond that, um, sort of a universal basic income system where if somebody, for example, has like a very artistic type of intelligence um, that maybe is not monetizable. And so they can't really find market value in what they're doing, even though they have innate human value and human intelligence, um, it would be something where they can still sustain and, and thrive uh, exercising their particular kind of intelligence. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, both of those things are in the book. Um, I think that those are things that I, that I definitely agree with. I mean, I, you know, I start with, with this often. So um, people are really, really deeply tied to the notion of just desserts. People really want to believe that... Um, our outcomes are the product of um, things that we control. And I think that that is true, yes, of people who have succeeded because they have a uh, intrinsic uh, reason to want to defend what they've done as somehow, you know, deserved or real or whatever. Uh, but there's also uh, a lot of that attitude crops up. I mean, people in the lower classes, like it's just not true that like um, everyone in the lower socioeconomic classes believes that, the, you know, the universe just decides our fate and that they have no control over their destiny. Um, it's something we are attached to. But I think that it is increasingly empirically indefensible, right? Like, there's a lot of research, not just anything having to do with genetics, but just in terms of, like, looking at the distribution of who succeeds versus who doesn't. And the odds that anyone would land in a particular place are clearly influenced by things that we simply cannot control. So um, I use this analogy a lot, but, like, if it's 800 AD, right, and you are born a serf in uh, Wales, and uh, you have the brain of Einstein, right? Guess what? It doesn't matter, right? That's never going to be something that's applicable to what you can do uh, in a way that's monetizable or that increases your power. Uh, you're probably going to go to work as a laborer. And if you had been born big and buff and burly rather than with the brain of Einstein, that would have been the advantage that suited you. We happen to exist now in this moment in an environment in which the brain is more uh, valuable than the big buff and burly body. But that's a historical accident, right? We could have been born at a time in which it was not valuable. So we have to start with that. You have to start by telling people like, look, um, it's all contingent, our definition of what success is. Um, some things are very valuable until they are not, right? And then when the economy uh, uh, shifts and changes, 
we have to be willing to, as a people, you know, create these structures that uh, help people when the economy shifts, right? Um, it was a really bad time to be a, uh, a travel agent in, you know, 2002, right? Because suddenly everyone can do everything online. Does that like, did all the people who spent their, you know, their lives becoming a travel agent and building up their businesses and, you know, do they deserve suddenly for their financial world to collapse? No, they got unlucky about when they decided to do that, right? So there has to be things that sort of adjust for those shocks. And so in terms of more specific policy, yeah, I think you have to broaden the definition of success. So I am not in favor of, for example, getting rid of the option to take algebra in eighth grade. But I am in favor of not mandating algebra in eighth grade. Amen, because brother. For some, yeah, <laughs> for so some people, that is yeah. Oh, me too. I'm terrible. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, for some people, you know, that's not going to fit their underlying skill set. And so we need to say, as a society, should we curse this person because they they're not ha don't happen to be an algebra person to a life of fifteen dollar an hour jobs and economic insecurity, mm -hmm. or do we create structures that make it easier for them? So yes. Trade school, although there's a lot of things to say about like what counts as a trade, the trades are super, super uh, contextual. Right. Like yeah. it's a great life if you're a unionized uh, master mason in New York, here in Manhattan, or here in New York City or in Manhattan. Um, it's not a great life if you're in Phoenix, Arizona and you're undocumented. You know, all those things are conditional, but creating more paths to stable employment that do not require a college degree is part of it. But I also think, that, as you suggest, like, I don't know if Andrew Yang is correct, um, but there is certainly an opinion out there that um, over time, if you look at the labor force participation rate, like just the number of people who are participating in the economy um, as a worker has been steadily going down. There's a real question about like whether the number of jobs is just always going to match uh, the number of job seekers. Now, right now we're in a really good job market, but for most of my adult life, it was overall a very bad job market. So you have to start to ask yourself, like, at what point does society become so productive that we start to give a dividend to people to ensure that if you're just unlucky enough not to have those kind of marketable skills, you know, you can still pay your rent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me try to take a, a crack at the pushback, which would be, okay, so let me grant you that um, you know there are innate genetic differences in people's intelligences and that's gonna have some impact on what they can do out there in the free market. But something that's totally in your control is the choices you make and your work grit, harder, bro. Your grit and your hard work <laughs> and your determination. And there are plenty of people out there who aren't, you know, Harvard law students that are doing just fine. We're not promising everybody riches. We're just saying, listen, if you apply yourself and you work hard, you can have a stable middle-class life. What do you say to that? So I, I think the first thing that you might say is that uh, there's in fact significant research that your grit, if you wanna call it that way, um, sometimes it's called conscientiousness, which is a terrible term for it, but that's often a term that's used in uh, behavioral genetics, that that in fact is also genetically uh, uh, modified, <laughs> that, um, that you, don't just, you don't just make up sort of, I'm gonna be a person with perseverance, but that you have a, a, an underlying sort of cognitive uh, thing. But it's aside from that, I'll so here's the story. Like, um, I was getting my PhD, um, I had a friend who was an entomology student, so studies bugs. And in fact, he studies uh, bed bugs. And his advisor at the time um, was a guy who 
was uh, like one of the leading is one of the leading bed bug experts in the world. Okay. Um, <laughs> he gets all the ladies. <laughs> well, so, so here's an example of like the, the inherently contingent, you know, nature of all of this. Um, you know, I remember back when I lived in Chicago in like 2005, 2006, I would go look at apartments and I wouldn't even think to ask about bed bugs because it was considered a solved problem. Like it was, bed bugs had been, were just, had, were dramatically reduced for a long period of time to the point that people didn't think about them, right? Suddenly they make a huge comeback for whatever reason. So this guy who is a professor at a, you know, a, a respected research university, public research university, was probably making like 125 grand a year in salary. Um, his name is at the top of the list for all these people when suddenly bed bugs becomes a big deal again. Um, so all, suddenly all of a sudden these firms are calling him for advice and like plans on how to deal with them. So yeah. he starts a consulting agency and within a couple of years, he's a multimillionaire. Oh my God. Okay? Because the yeah. population of bed bugs, which he has absolutely no control over, suddenly exploded again. And so the monetizability of that skill set was suddenly dramatically increased. Was he working harder than he was when nobody gave, yeah. gave a shit about bed bugs, right? Like, is there any relationship between like his virtue or his underlying like ability and his, you know, the size of his wallet? No, it's like, we're all stuck in these contingent situations in which everything, look, look, you know, um, the week that Substack approached me and asked me to do this, I had just accepted a $15 an hour junk removal job. Okay. And if Substack hadn't come to me and, and asked me to do this, I would still be there. Right. And now I'm living very comfortably in Brooklyn. Um, thanks to Substack. I don't think I was like an inherently smarter or better person. Uh, the day after I got the offer. He's saying, he's saying our tune, Crystal. I mean, Freddie, the, the thing that you're getting at here is that every society has some sort of mythology they have to construct that justifies the distribution of resources. And it mm -hmm. used to be, yeah. I mean, there used to be this thought of like, oh, it's Hierarchy. divine, yeah, it's divine. God, you know, that said this is the king and this is this class and you're in that class and right. that's just how it is. We've constructed another tale that doesn't involve, you know, divine right, but it's equally fanciful in certain ways. Yeah, it's the myth of meritocracy. It's the myth that we, yeah. Crystal and I have talked about this a number of times. I mean, in order to quote unquote succeed in, in what you do, I mean, take me for example, my timing is probably, the fact that I was, I had good timing is one of the main reasons why I made it. And then also, like you said, the conscientiousness thing, but I don't attribute that to just me pulling myself up on my bootstraps. It was like, it was just something that like, I didn't feel like I had any other options. I got up every day and did the same goddamn thing. So yeah. it's a tremendous stroke of luck. And when you think of, I always say, there's this guy who I knew from high school, his name is Kevin. The dude worked three jobs and lived like at the poverty line. Hardest working dude I, uh, I knew. Now, is it an indictment on his character or his values that he yeah. was living at the poverty line? It's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And then there are plenty of people who sit behind a desk. I mean, I have other friends who, you know, works for a big bank somewhere. And he'll tell you, he's like, I spend 75% of my day sitting at my desk playing like solitaire on the computer. So it's, mm. just, it's so arbitrary. And this myth of meritocracy, it's funny enough, I find it's one of the harder ones for people to let go of, ultimately. You know, it's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you if you think that there's been an erosion in our, in the nation at large's undying faith in this myth of meritocracy. Um, I was really struck. There was a book that came out right after Trump first won called The New Minority 
um, by a guy named Justin Guest. And he had done all of these, you know, right at the beginning of the rise of Trump. So he was very sort of like ahead of the curve in thinking about the white working class and the realignment to the Democratic Party. And he'd done these studies of white working class people in Youngstown, Ohio, and then also white working class people in a, a suburb of London. But he asked them about the American dream. And there was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of basically like, that shit doesn't work anymore. Like maybe for my dad and my grandfather, the idea of you work hard and you can pull yourself up, but that doesn't exist anymore for us here in Youngstown, where of course, you know, the industrial base has been decimated and what is valuable by the market is totally different than what it was a generation or certainly two generations ago. So do you think that um, there is an erosion of faith in the meritocracy? And do you think that that provides an opening for a, a sort of left orientation about what's really going on and what really might constitute justice? I mean, I think that the problem is, I think that there is an erosion of faith in meritocracy, but it's not particularly coherent or useful in the sense that mm -hmm. um, if you are on the left, the broad left, left of center, um, you have to have a, a coherent idea about where the personal ends and where the, the structural begins. And you have to understand that like, people need to hear messages on different levels, okay? Um, the fact that it is, again, I would say like just empirically, scientifically the case that um, we don't in, in the macro control our own destinies and that we're always buffeted by chance in these things that are um, happening to us that we can't control, uh, that does not mean that it's necessarily the best uh way to sort of teach people to operate in the world to believe that like oh you're just a you know you're a uh a victim of circumstance you can't control anything mm. you might as well you know th right. that's not the message that we should give people on the personal level i think the problem right now is you know the left controls or at least has much more control over like culture and ideas than it does over anything sort of structural and so we have the cultural idea of like this sucks meritocracy sucks capitalism sucks uh, you know, you're just, uh, you know, for example, the message that I would say that black children are receiving right now for many people on the broad left is, look, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're a child, uh, you're, you were, you were born a victim. Um, you know, you have no ability to overcome the vagaries of white supremacy and racism. And, uh, you know, we're gonna use all kinds of weird vocabulary to talk about you as a way to honor you, but we're leaving the same economy in place. Right. 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 Um, individuals have to feel that, that they can make choices that matter in their life, um, if nothing else, to sort of, you know, create, foster like a healthy mental and emotional sort of uh, uh, point of view, while understanding politically that at the structural level, um, you know, they are bound by all sorts of things that sort of control their outcomes. I recognize that that's kind of a nuanced point to take, right? Um, I'm afraid that, you know, there's an all-encompassing pessimism in my slice of the left, the socialist left, the left of liberal left, um, where so much of the messaging is everything sucks, we can't fix anything, um, everybody should give up, capitalism is, is all-powerful, uh, I'm just going to sit around and shitpost um, and uh, complain all day because I don't believe that you know change is possible. And that's just, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, if you talk like a fucking loser, you're going to be a loser, you know? Yeah. And like... <laughs> It's just, it, you're right, Freddie, and there is, there is a, a colossal difference between the personal and the political. And this is something like, you know, not to be flippant or glib here, but when you think of somebody like Jordan Peterson 
and why there was like a meteoric rise of him, particularly on the right. Not a fan of his politics, not a fan of his religious stuff, but his psychology stuff is interesting. And he gave people that mindset of like, you know, you have to grind, you have to be conscientious, you have to have discipline, you have to have all these things. So on the one hand, on the personal level, that might serve you well, even if it's just in the ends of like, now I have hope. That might serve you mm -hmm. well. But, you know, the left, the reason why it's a difficult balancing act for the left is like you're alluding to, at what point does the personal end and the structural begin? And then which thing do we work on first? Because, uh, you know, here's a thought. Martin Luther King Jr. was sleeping with however many <laughs> women mm. he was sleeping with, having an, an affair. And personally, he may have been a mess. But politically, the grand vision was brilliant. And and if you t he took Jordan Peterson's advice of like, hey, man, clean up your own room before you try to fix anything about society. We wouldn't be where we are today in many respects when it comes to civil rights and voting rights. So, yeah, I don't have the answer. Yeah, I don't know how to balance that properly, but where you, it's almost like you have this um, altruistic might not be the right word, but this like altruistic, uh, beneficial personal belief, which is sort of contradictory with the structural aspect of it. And then how do you marry those two and well, navigate think, that fairly? I think you can acknowledge that individuals have agency and choice and can make good decisions and bad decisions while also looking overall at systems and saying, oh, if there are, you know, overwhelming trends in this direction, or if we have this, you know, this problem with insane conspiracy theories on the right and interested in authoritarianism, like, that does, doesn't just come because these are bad people, that they're, you know, they have individual choice and agency, but there are also systems that are moving us in that, in that direction. I think that's kind of the way, I mean, do you agree with that? Is that kind of the way you think about it? Yeah, we'll sort of return this back to the, the topic of like um, behavioral genetics. Um, uh, you know, there's a classic book about Judith Rich Harris called uh, the, the Nurture Assumption from the 1990s. Um, and she was a social scientist who just said, like, you know, if you look at all of the stuff that sort of goes out to parents, um, all of the sort of rhetoric and propaganda that goes out to parents, um, it all, you know, proceed, at least at that time, proceeds from the assumption that, like, the parent sort of is molding the child into this particular thing, and that you as a parent have you know, total control over the person that your child becomes. Now, partly that's because, like, there's an industry in making parents panic, like it's a very profitable and reliable one, is like making parents feel like, you know, everything is going wrong for their kid even when it isn't. Like I'm, you know, I'm surrounded. This is, I live in the heart of, you know, baby stroller Brooklyn. You have all of these kids who are being born into affluence with, you know, two stable parents and loving relationships and, you know, who have everything they can need. And the parents are a fucking mess because they've been convinced by their culture that like, you know, their kid is gonna turn out to be this horrible monster. Um, but anyway, Judith Ruth Harris says, you know, like, look, like there's an immense amount of research that shows that like fundamental aspects of your child's personality are not yours to determine, right? That like you can't actually decide that an impatient child is going to become a patient child, that you can't actually decide that an introverted child is going to become an extroverted child. And part of the pushback to that has always been like, oh, you're saying parenting doesn't matter, right? Which, of course, is a really weird thing to say, because whether or not you can turn a child from being a child who's, you know, very shy and quiet to very sort of extroverted and loud and sociable is not the same thing as saying, like, 
does parenting matter? Of course it matters. You determine if they have a happy childhood, right? You determine if they feel nurtured, if they feel loved, if they know that they have someone they can always turn to. If you're creating an environment in, in which, you know, they can flourish on their own and do, and do the best that they can, right? Yeah. And it's the same way with our education system and our economy writ large. If the goal is, I'm going to turn every student in this country into a busy little meritocrat who can go to elite colleges, graduate out, and, you know, get some job as a programmer or end up working as an apparatchik at a uh, fancy nonprofit, right? Who can do this sort of American dream, like um, Brooklyn Brownstone, like affluent uh, sort of vision of what success is, then the answer to that is absolutely not, right? Like, we can't do that for all manner of reasons. Um, but, like, that's a shitty definition of success, right? I mean, I always say... One thing that people, you know, the one of the, the first miracle of public schooling uh, is not that kids get an education in for free in the sense that we're going to take their math level from this skill to this skill. The first miracle of public education is that for many uh, children in certain demographics, school is the safest place they'll ever be in their lives, right? Mm. They're significantly safer, better fed, in a warmer, nurturing environment. I mean, it's... It, you know, it cannot possibly be overstated the just huge humanitarian benefit of having, you know, poor children being able to go to buildings that are, in fact, quite safe, despite media rhetoric, that have heat, that have uh, other children that they can socialize and play with, that have adults who can look after them, that have free meals, etc. Right. That like, That's the first thing. And yeah. so, like, to me, right, like the whole point of building a better school system if the goal is just everybody's got to come out of this, you know, with the same skills as the, you know, uh, someone who goes on to, you know, uh, be a Princeton grad, that cannot possibly succeed. And that's a stupid goal. But if the goal is to make our schooling system safe, warm, nurturing and places where students can find out what they're good at and what they like. And we broaden the definition of success. So we don't just say. Uh, only algebra matters, even while we say, yeah, for you guys over here, algebra matters and that's awesome. Like That's the goal. It is to create a place where there's more opportunity to define success broadly. So what do you think about some of the hot button contro education controversies in New York City, the, um, you know, doing away with like the segregated pullout, gifted and talented programs, getting rid of the special schools that you test into um, some have framed this as basically like anti-Asian bias mm. because there were such a large proportion of Asian students that were getting into those programs and then white students and then I think Latino and then black students as a much lower percentage. What do you think of some of those controversies? Well, for the anti-Asian thing particularly, I can't speak to the New York City public school uh, sort of issue and the degree to which that's motivated by a desire to reduce the Asian student population. I will say that the broader sense that there is a um, anti-Asian uh, bias exists because that's absolutely true. I mean, I, so for example, in the University of California is what, you know, they're getting rid of the SAT uh, entirely. They've taken many um, uh, steps that have the uh, impact, they'll never admit that this is what they're doing, that have the impact of reducing the Asian student population. Uh, there are, you know, many people within the system who will tell you that that's an open secret, right? That it's that it's not particularly um, uh, hidden fact that like they're trying to engineer a different racial uh, uh, makeup in their schools. 
yes, for more black and Hispanic students, which I think is noble, but also they think their schools are perceived as too Asian and, and that, that that has problems with their competitiveness against other schools. And that's true across a whole lot of different things. You know, Harvard had to open their books um, not that long ago because of a, a lawsuit. It's been revealed that, yes, in fact, the obvious is true, is that it's dramatically harder for any given Asian student to get into Harvard than students from other racial backgrounds for a given, like, uh, GPA, uh, SAT score, et cetera. Um, look, I am not super hung up on gifted and talented programs getting cut because the kids who go into them are gifted and talented, right? Okay, like, in other words, um, they're going to be fine. So I mentioned cutting algebra. Uh, the uh, California public schools, K through 12, are in the process of probably dropping the ability to take algebra as an eighth grader. Okay, mm. um, and it is sold directly as a racial equity kind of a initiative. Um, I'm not, you know, the thing is, it depends on how you look at it. Like, you know, the kind of kids, who, most of the kids who are going to the gifted talented programs right now, um, come from stable families whose parents have the financial wherewithal to be able to get that kid the kind of training that they need to succeed. Okay, it's not as if dropping the gifted and talented program, all of a sudden these kids are going to lose all of their advantage. They're already gifted and talented. They'll probably be fine in the long run. The problem is number one is um, you've got a cohort of kids who are just gifted and talented and do not have that sort of uh, the help of parents and their sort of economic standing to be able to get this training elsewhere. So they're going to suffer. But also it does nothing to solve sort of the underlying problem. The underlying problem is that poorer and blacker students in this country are underperforming the national average. Now, to me, just like we talked about before, the reasons for that are pretty obvious, right? We say that we live under white supremacy and that we have a lot of racial inequality and that there's lots of disadvantages that, that black kids face. Obviously, poor kids face a lot of disadvantages. Therefore, it would be strange if they weren't struggling, right? Right. But the question is, is, is getting rid of algebra in California schools at the eighth grade level going to help those kids not struggle? No. Is getting rid of the gifted and talented programs in New York uh, City schools going to suddenly make the struggling black and poor kids in New York City schools perform better? No. It's just you're getting rid of indicators because you don't like what the indicators reveal. And it's the same thing. I mean, I've written about the SAT a half dozen times in the past year. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do think the analogy is apt, which is just that, like, um, getting rid of the SAT because you don't like the ra racial inequality it reveals is like getting rid of thermometers because you don't want to think about uh, climate change, right? Mm. The the underlying problem is not addressed. Um, I do understand that we have not come up with a way yet to actually solve the um, broad-based socioeconomic inequality that afflicts students of all races, but particularly black students in this country. And it can seem like nihilism to say, well, we can't fix it in the classroom, but we can't fix it in the classroom, right? If, if, you, know, if you have a generation of young black students uh, who are you know, going home to uh, homes that where uh, it's single fa uh, uh, parent family where the mom is working, you know, uh, 60 hours a week just to be able to afford the rent and put uh, food on the table and the boilers busted and there's no access to YouTube like the white kids have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at some point you have to acknowledge that like uh, you're, you cannot ask uh, teachers who see these kids for six hours a day and are working under all the kinds of their own constraints to suddenly magically pull them out of that. And it's, you know, it's like everything else in race in this country. Like 
we have really inflamed racial rhetoric, but we don't have a plan. Mm. Freddie, um, I want to pivot to another issue here, potential disagreement. I want to lay out my response to a controversial thing you said recently and then get your Mm. reaction to it. So uh, this got a lot of play. You said... uh, It's time for young socialists and progressive Democrats to recognize that our beliefs just might not be popular enough to win elections consistently. It does us no favors to pretend otherwise. What too many young socialists and progressive Democrats don't seem to realize is that it's perfectly possible that the Democratic Party is biased against our beliefs and that our beliefs simply aren't very popular. So let me uh, break down my response to this. The one area of agreement is where you say the Democratic Party is biased against our beliefs. I think that's obvious. The area Mm -hmm. of disagreement is that our beliefs simply aren't very popular. Um, and, you know, my response is basically the polling data. So just to give one example, um, morning consult, Vox poll, this was back during Bernie's first run, raising taxes on the wealthy, 73%, raising taxes on big corporations, 66%, single-payer health care, 55%, free college, 59%. Even if you look at the Build Back Better bill, there was a recent round of polling uh, where you had Medicare lowering uh, drug prices, 73%, lowering the Medicare age, 59%, universal pre-K, 59%, um, tuition-free community college, 58%. Extending child tax benefit um, is plus nine. So uh, the problem as I see it is this. I'm not saying that there aren't huge electoral issues on the left. Obviously, there are. That's why the track record has been abysmal. The problem as I see it is this. The left, generally speaking, likes to virtue signal to an insular subgroup with unpopular stuff like defund the police. Uh, You know, they like to use goofy terms like Latinx, which we just learned polls at 2%. I do think there's an issue with, more generally speaking, wokeness, for lack of a better term, on the left. Um, But I I feel like that's more of a distraction from the real problem, which is that you have the corruption of the Democratic Party taking big money from big pharma, Wall Street, uh, military-industrial complex, so on and so forth, and it makes it so that... um, you're not really able to embrace these super popular economically left policies. So it's not a problem with the left per se. There are, are problems with the left, but the main problem is not a problem with the left per se. It is more of a systemic structural problem with the Democratic Party that in turn makes it so they sort of quash any and all real left uh, economic agendas from succeeding. So I don't at all dismiss uh, the importance of that polling. And I do think that there is uh, a lot of popularity for the the sort of vaguer ideas of sort of this part of a leftist policy agenda. Um, But I think the first thing to say is never underestimate the incoherence of the American public. Um, So let's look at like Medicare for all. Um, Medicare for all is just what I want in a sort of post-Occupy, post-Bernie left. Um, I don't have a lot of reasons that I can feel uh, confident or um, hopeful about where we're going as a socialist left. But I think one of the best things is like people have coalesced around, okay, Medicare for all is the right policy, right? It's the right policy in all manner of ways. It's vastly more um, humane. It also can save money in the long run. It's something specific. I mean, there are actual honest to God, no bullshit, like policy proposals for how this would work. Uh, And it does pull well, right? And that's important. However, Medicare for all polls really well. What polls really poorly is eliminating private insurance. This does not make sense because uh, an intrinsic part of Medicare for all is killing uh, private insurance, right? Um, We have to remember that like most people are not policy wonks. 
right? And there's going to be these sticking points where as much as, look, I would, I would snap my fingers and have single payer in a heartbeat. And again, I think it's the right goal to work for. But um, at some point, people are going to confront the fact that, um, oh, I can't have the insurance that I had anymore, that, that I used to have anymore. And they're going to freak out. And of course, that freak out is going to be aided and embedded by the fact that um, the medical industry is now almost like 20% of GDP. So it's an absolutely immense industry. Um, it, right now, it employs about 15% of the American population, but every projection has that growing dramatically in the next few decades. Okay? It, will, it will quickly get to 20%. And the, the industry will react in the way that you can expect, right? which is to fearmonger all this stuff, to say you're taking away your grandma's health insurance. Uh, and so people's conf sort of conflicted and confused sense of like what they want is going to be expertly played by people with an awful lot of money and influence to be able to do this. The same thing with raising taxes on the wealthy. Everybody loves the idea of raising taxes on the wealthy, right? And so do I. Um, the issue is people don't seem to understand how low the cutoff would be for you to be start seeing your, your taxes go up. There's no way that, again, I think that in the long run, Medicare for all pays for itself. It saves the country money. It's absolutely the right policy to pursue. But in the short term, middle class people are going to see their taxes go up in order to pay for that. Like I look, I would love to do a sort but of you modern eliminate your private uh, your private premium though. So you would that's save true, money. That's true, right? right? Yeah. Yes, I well I agree. But like I think you, we have to understand like um, I talk to people all the time who make like 65, 70 grand and they talk about like we need to raise taxes on the wealthy and I just want to say to them the median individual income in this country is $37,000 a year, okay? You are near the top 20% of earners your taxes will go up if the wealthy get taxed more, right? Well, it depends there how you craft a, the policy, Freddie, doesn't it? Right, right. Well, the thing is, but this is the thing. So, like, there has to be an acknowledgement, right, that many of the people who carry the standards of the left, again, like where I live here in Park Slope, I, I guarantee you, like, taxing the rich, taxing the wealthy is going to pull really well. But they are people who honestly think that they're not wealthy because even though they make $150,000 a year. Here's the right? other here's the other problem, though. I mean, um, Republicans, most of their agenda, if you poll on it, is not popular, <laughs> you know, like— I mean, if you poll on should women never under any circumstances have a right to get an abortion, that's not popular. 18%. Yeah, if you if you poll on certainly their economic plans, hey, should we not just not tax the rich more? Should we give the rich a big tax break? That is a devastatingly like bad polling thing. And yet they seem to win elections because, because of industry. perfectly well. So right. I think, you know, the point is that a lot of these things are it's not so much a policy issue or while there are major messaging issues, especially around um, cultural issues on the left, where there's a desire to sort of play act as radical as we can and turn off as many people as possible for some reason, rather than actually trying to build coalitions to win. The bigger problem are some of these structural things. And I just I think back to the 2020 race. I mean, the biggest problem for Bernie wasn't his policy proposals, which, you know, Medicare for All did poll well during that campaign. People routinely said we like Bernie's policies more than Joe Biden. The problem was that people f were convinced that Joe Biden was the one who could win. And they, right. they mm -hmm. were, you know, and so I think leaving those sorts of things like the electability piece out, which gets run and, you know, it's not just a Bernie Biden Trump thing. That's the playbook that Democrats use over and over and over again 
to try to, to make sure that people stay in line and vote for the candidate that the Democratic Party tells you is the one who can win. But Freddie, I want to just drill down and respond to your point because I feel like this is really important. So mm. what I'm advocating for and what I think is the core of the problem and in turn the solution is so if you look at FDR, who actually took on big money interests, he said famously, like, I welcome their hatred. So even in the scenario that you lay out of, look, here's what we're up against. The industry is going to kick into gear. They're going to fear monger over this. They're, they're going to drive down the poll numbers for Medicare for all. And I think all that stuff is, is true. I'm, I'm convinced it's going to happen. The industry never lays down. But to get to the core of the problem being the, the total corruption, neoliberal rot in the Democratic Party, the response I would advocate to that is to actually tell the American people what's going on here and say, you're getting a whole bunch of propaganda, and the reason you're getting it is because of Humana, and the reason you're getting it is because of Blue Cross Blue Shield and, and Cigna, and they are protecting their profits by any means necessary, so they're lying to you and telling you that the health care is going to be worse and your grandma's going to be killed or whatever. It's a, you know, a rerun everything that was said during the Obamacare debate. And so I'm the one who's representing you. I'm the one who's looking out for you, and I can assure you that's the case because I've taken zero dollars and zero cents from these snakes mm. and from this, mm. this swamp that actually does need to be drained. And so, but my point is the reason we don't get that response and we don't get that fight is because of the big money in the system. So I don't think it's that left ideas aren't popular. I think it's that there's basically like a governor on left ideas where you can only go so far and no further because there's only like one or five people in the country who are sincerely advocating for these ideas and zero who are advocating for these ideas with the same attitude of FDR of like, no, seriously, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna play ball with my own party here. I'm calling everybody out and I'm going down. Well, look, this is the fight that I want to have. I, mean, right. I, I agree with you that this is what I want to do moving forward. I want to stress a couple of things, though. Um, I, the analogy that I use in that New York Times piece is of, you know, um, Democrats convincing themselves that uh, racial demographic change meant that they had just certain victory if you just looked far enough in, in the future. And it deeply influenced the way that the party operated and totally. the way people talked. And it's just people sitting around like, hey. Here comes victory. It's going to happen. There's a similar thing that happens with the left, which is so often, right, I talk to people who are absolutely convinced that the entire left project is already popular with the American people. And if we can just get the, the, the politicians out of the way, you know, we'll be fine. And my point is, like, um, some of the things that's true, some of it's not. But, like, there's no alternative to the slow, hard work of building a broad oh, base. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I agree on that. There's, yeah. yeah, I, I think I mean, it's a hard fight actually, moving forward. I honestly yeah. think... Uh, to me, the bigger problem is that there doesn't even seem to be that much interest in a lot of spaces on the left in winning. You know, I mean, right. Yeah, that's true. They don't. I mean, I do. I do think that there needs to be an acknowledgement. And I feel like because the voting public has been turned into all these little mini pundits trying to figure out what someone in, you know, a factory man in the Rust Belt wants out of a president, which is new, by the way, even in the Obama years, people were not voting based on, hmm, who do I think is going to be the best one to win? But I do think because of that, everybody is trying to frame their political project in terms of, oh, ours is truly the winning strategy. And there's no doubt that it would benefit the left to be honest about which pieces are popular and which pieces aren't popular, that doesn't mean that you abandon any of it, but it informs the way that you talk about it and the things that you foreground in, you know, depending on where you are in the country and the type of audience that, that you're speaking to. But I honestly think the bigger problem is that a lot of people on the left are more interested in, you know, virtue signaling, virtue signaling their, yeah. their own 
<laughs> moral I'm, positioning I'm more than, pure. than they are in actually doing that hard work of trying to reach out to people who aren't already on board with you. Effectively, yeah. if you aren't already 100% there on every single issue, the instinct is then, then you're evil, you're bad, we don't want you. I mean, I look, like, I... I mean, so for one thing that's close to my heart is that, like, um, I, I really want to convince young socialists that they have to understand that, like, you can't shitpost your way to a better world, right? Like, the absolute obsessive fixation on telling the most clever joke on Twitter or Reddit or in your Discord, whatever, like, that has become such a deeply ingrained element of, you know, left of liberal, socialist, whatever, radical politics, especially since Bernie's loss. Um, and I fucking hate it, and it is so uh, destructive. I, you know, look, I get it, right? I mean, during Bernie's, during 2016, I was one of the people on Twitter yelling at Hillary Clinton supporters and telling jokes because it was so absurd how, you know, how they had stacked the deck and how it, uh, it's sort of, you know, cruel and uh, uh, unfair the sort of the rules were being towards Bernie's candidacy. So I, I kind of get it. But at some point, you have to move on. Like, there, there has to be an acknowledgement that, like, if you want to be part of something that can actually create change, you can't get up every morning and just tweet fucking gifts and jokes. And it sucked a lot of sort of energy out of people. I, you know, people ask me constantly, what do you think of DSA? And my response is always like, which DSA, right? Because there's activist DSA. So I do a ton of housing activism, tenants' right activism here in New York City. Whenever I go to events, to protests, um, to all kinds of, uh, you know, in real life activist things, there's always DSA people there. They're always carrying their banner. They're working. That stuff is so important. That's precisely the kind of work they should be doing. That DSA I really like. But there's also shitposting DSA, which is the Internet is flooded with people who are DSA members and who identify that way as DSA members online. And all they do all day, every day is crack jokes. And it's not helping anything. And people say, like, oh, you're saying, like, you shouldn't have tra Chapel Trap House or whatever. No, I'm not saying that. Of course, there should be places that are designed for, like, blowing off steam and using humor and, like, and being fun. We, we do need that. The problem is, is, like, people saw that. They said, oh, that looks like fun. And they decided that's what, like, left practice is. Mm. And I just find that totally, totally destructive. And I find it personally quite exhausting. And then the other thing is just that, you know, um... I don't know what the plan is right now. Like following everything that happened with Bernie, I said publicly, and I still feel like, you know, if this just turns into all this left energy is just becomes like sort of like, you know, a left wing that scolds the Democratic Party and kind of tries to move them left, right? Um, I would find that a disappointing outcome. But um, looking back now, it's like, well, at least that's like a thing, right? Like deciding, like if if all this, if the DSA is going to be sort of a democratic interest group, if sort of Bernie, you know, you know, Bernie is now, um, you know, I, I'm very happy that he is the position that he has, uh, that he chairs that committee, and I think that he's doing a lot of great things. But like, you know, he is now firmly en ensconced within the leadership of the Democratic Party and using that as his organ. At least that's something, right? I don't know what the post-Occupy, post-Bernie uh, sort of uh, plan is for uh, this broad sort of socialist or radical thing. And I don't expect everyone to get on board with the same thing, but um, there was a sense that something had changed, that there was a rebirth of American socialism, that we were moving in the right direction, um, and everything has been eaten by culture war, and I don't know where it's going.
So uh, I, I will provide a little bit of hope. I, this is a t pep talk I've given you before. It's a pep talk I've given my <laughs> audience before. I can't say I can't say that my audience was necessarily on board with what I was saying, but I don't give a fuck. I'm going to say what I think anyway, and mm. if they happen to think I'm wrong, piss off. It doesn't matter. Uh, so uh, most importantly, solidarity and taking on the donor class. Those need to be the things that uh, are most animating at our core on the left. And then beyond that, an actual practical, tangible path forward, unionization, Get involved in local politics, get involved in state politics, direct issue advocacy. Um, just get involved. Don't give up on electoral politics because there is this this feeling that it's honestly so sad and loserish on the left. This idea of like total doomerism and nihilism because we took two cracks at it and, and, and didn't get over the finish line. And I get it. People say like, look, man, they rigged it against Bernie. So like uh, and their takeaway from that is, well, why not? Why would we even try again? To which my response is. They fucking rigged it against Donald Trump in 2016, and he just overwhelmed them with the numbers he had. So now we got to overwhelm them with the numbers we have, and don't fucking make excuses if we lose. Actually, go back to the drawing board, figure out what you did wrong, and adjust course moving forward. So, you know, that's that's my answer to that. But I will not stop shit posting because now you're coming after my livelihood, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you get you get post you get paid to post, right? And most of the people who have who have this terrible parasocial relationship with their Twitter feed, they don't. And I, I, I genuinely, I have seen individuals who might be people who have become activists, who become you know people who are really involved, who just descend into this snarky, ironic uh, nihilism, true. because that's, that's, the, that's the culture in that space. And it's like, everything sucks, we can't possibly win, it's so fucked up, so I'm just gonna tell jokes. And I would just say like, then just fucking get out of here. Like just, right, just yeah. you know, just find a different a different corner than calling yourself yeah. a socialist because you can go to a comedy club and be a loser there. I don't want it in my movement. Yeah, <laughs> just don't get in the way. That's what I always say. Let me ask. This is my last question for you, Freddie. Um, and then I have one more after her. Okay. What do you think about uh, some of the the budding flowers of re of resurgent labor movement right now. I mean, we've seen all kinds of indicators that there's something mm -hmm. happening in the labor market, whether it's the strikes that have been going on, whether it's some of the, you know, um, unionization efforts like at the Buffalo Starbucks or with some of the Amazon warehouses. Do you find that to be encouraging and what do you make of it? I do. Uh, it's very nascent and it's very fragile. I will say this. Um, you know, I'm frequently accused of being a class first leftist, and I don't even really. I, that's that's cool at this point. I don't. I don't care. I mean, I, yeah, I don't. Welcome to the I, club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't like. I you know, I I have pushed off that label for so long. I I think that that's like wrong in a certain sense, but whatever. But you know, so why is class first, right? If you're a class first leftist, why do you put class first? Class is first because class alone has the kind of universal across demographic valence that can result in something like a re-empowered labor movement, right? Like uh, a black worker and a Hispanic worker and a white worker and an Asian worker cannot find solidarity via race because they don't share a race, right? A trans and a cis worker cannot find solidarity versus gender because they don't share a gender identity, right? Et cetera, et cetera. But they all share, right, being subject to exploitation suffering from socioeconomic inequality, being at, you know, subject to the deprivations of their bosses. So that's why class is first. This nascent labor thing can coalesce and build into something if the people on this side of the sort of political spectrum are willing to say, okay, like, yes, we are together and we are stressing togetherness rather than division. The problem is, is that 
the activist class of the Democratic Party and of liberal America um, have ad adopted a political vision that is, you know, relentlessly focused on chopping people up into smaller and smaller little bits uh, and saying, no, you're not this, you're this, and this is your little thing, and your pain is different from this person's pain, when the, the message we need is absolutely the opposite. So I think that there can be a populist revolt against the forces of division that sort of stresses like, look, the boss sucks for all of us. We're all, you know, struggling to pay the mortgage. Um, but unfortunately, it has to work directly against, right, the donor class, the activist class, the intelligentsia of the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, I think that's profound. Um, so feel free, Freddie, if you don't want to talk about this, swat it away, no problem whatsoever. But uh, I think you did something pretty brave. You had an acute psychotic episode and uh, bipolar mania, and you're on uh, medication. You did various forms of therapy, including cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, psychoanalytic therapy. Um, uh, first of all, it is brave for you to come out and say that because most people who go through something like that don't just hide it or, or, you know, they're ashamed of it or whatever. You said, no, this is what happened. This is what I deal with. So I want you to talk a little bit about that um, and take it in whatever direction you want. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, look, uh, what happened in 2017 was a big deal. And it's something that I have, my, you know, my freak out and the various things that I did bad then. And there was not just the ones that are public or other things that I did. Um, I only I only went to the hospital because I was trying to dodge the cops at that point. Um, and that is obviously a really big deal in my life. But, you know, I was first hospitalized. I was first involuntarily committed when I was 20. Right. And so other people sort of learn about you on the Internet and you become a, you know, like a grade Z celebrity in their mind, and they sort of place you into a particular location based on what they know. And so for them, right, like what happened in 2017 is like the big thing in my life. And while it was a big thing in my life, it has finally led to now uh, four plus years of consistent medication. I had never hit nine months before that, for the record. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's all part of a very long process. And, um, you know, eventually you age out of bipolar, but I probably have another 20, 25 years before that happens. And the medication sucks. But um, I think that people should understand that, like, um, it's really easy to have an understanding of mental illness where even if you are someone who's educated and progressive and who, uh, you know, uh, tries to maintain like a not ableist or whatever perspective, most people casually think of psychotic disorders as the guy on the subway platform who's talking to himself and screaming and going crazy, right? It's really hard to make people understand that you can be at different times someone who is, you know, well, as composed and put together as I can be, which is not, you know, uh, that great even in the best of times, but, uh, you know, a functional human being um, compared to someone who, you know, um, I have accused friends of uh, putting shaved glass in my food and I uh, frequently complain that I'm being pursued by the railroad police, which I don't even know what that is. Um, you know, um, we walk among you, you know, like there's people that you know who are uh, struggling from psychotic disorders and you have no idea about it. And uh, I think that, you know, like everything else I hope uh, in my writing, you know, I just want people to expand the moral imagination um, and to think a little bit more differently. Like, what if that was me? Because I think, you know, the heart of the left, right? Like the, the most basic appeal of the left is to take someone and say, this person is not like you, right? But what if it was you, 
right? Yeah. And to, to have the moral imagination to understand what their life is like. And I think that's the key to um, everything I want to do politically. What, um, if you don't mind talking about this as well, what, what was the resistance to the medication in the past? And then what's your advice to people who have family members who are struggling with mental illness, who don't want to, you know, don't want to take the medication, don't want to get the help that they need? Yeah, so um, it's a lot of things. Uh, the most obvious is that the medications, uh, uh, particularly antipsychotic medications, but, you know, I'm, I take um, five uh, psychiatric medications a day, and the side effects are extremely punishing. Um, uh, the weight gain, so the day, I mean, look, like I, one of the things that happens when I'm manic is I get um, uh, unhealthily skinny because I don't eat, um, and I work out like a demon. But the day that I went to the hospital in, 20, in 2017, I was uh, 177. Um, less than three months later, I was 230. So um, extreme weight gain is just a part of uh, the, particularly with antipsychotics, but, um, you know, just about anyone who goes on serious psychotic medication, serious psychiatric medication is going to gain 15 to 20 pounds at the best. And I know that sounds kind of vain, but it's a big deal to a lot of people. But in addition to that, all kinds of gastrointestinal problems, my hands shake, um, my, my antipsychotic medication have um, extreme cognitive uh side effects, which relate to uh, memory and focus, which pretty much got me fired from my job at CUNY. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that comes with this that is extremely discouraging side effect profile, and it, that can't be ignored. But the other thing is that um, denial is very powerful. And, you know, like I said, like I was, I was involuntarily committed when I was 20. Um, I'm very close to my siblings. I didn't tell them about that until I was 31 years old. Wow. Um, I... Uh, Denial is powerful, but also there's a an aspect of psychotic disorders where there's a period with the, that they call the prodrome, which is when you are coming up. And the prodrome is uh, seductive in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the ways is that, um, uh, I mean, look, like I, I get more uh, productive, I get more sociable, I get skinny, I get, you know, it looks like a good thing at the beginning. But also, you begin to develop a sense that, like, this is who you really are. There's a powerful, powerful um, thing baked into many people's mania that, like, when you're going up, this is the state that you are meant to be. This is your real self. And that is really, really hard to, um, to fight against that. Um, one of the reasons why I write so much is because um, I live with the constant sense of, you know, my rational mind knows that um, I am better medicated. My life is better in every way. I cannot uh, be unmedicated again because I'll, I'll just ruin my life again. Um, and it's not true that that is the real me. But there's always that voice in the back of your head. So writing for me is always a, a process of self-definition because I want the right to be able to determine who I am in a way that my brain won't always allow me to. As far as like, sorry, as far as like what you should do um, if you have a family member or a loved one, um, you can't do this for them, okay? Uh, if they are reaching a state in which you think that they are a danger to themselves or, or others, um, you have to work on getting them into the system. And I say that, um, look, being involuntarily committed was one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life. Okay. And I, you know, part of my whole thing for the following 15 years was um, a negotiation of trying to avoid that happening again, which often got in the way of getting care. It sucks. It's the terrible thing to do to someone, but you have to force them. They, you know, they either they have to want to get better and they almost never want to get better or they have to be forced into the system. But you can't do it for them. 
right? Like you cannot love someone enough so that they become in control of they have a psychotic disorder. And you have to really, really fight hard to explain to your own brain, this is not something I can control. All I can do is try to put this person into a path where they'll get the medication so that they can get under control enough to make decisions for themselves. Are you happier on the meds? Oh God, it sucks, dude. I hate it. Um, I absolutely hate it. Your mood, your just, mood isn't more consistent. Your mood isn't more leveled out. You don't feel a sense of relief more so on the meds than you did before when you were in a state of mania. Being on meds is very good for me, and this is, like I said, I'm I'm, I'm past four years now straight, uh, which is wild for me. Uh, and this is what I need to do in order to maintain uh, a healthy and stable life. Uh, so that I don't self-harm, so that I don't set more of my f relationships and friendships on fire. Um, you know, I can name a dozen people who um, rightfully uh, cut me out of their lives because of my uh, behavior while I was manic, and I don't blame them for a moment. Um, so yeah, uh, meds me is better, but do I, do I prefer this? Not at all. If, if I go off meds tomorrow, um, within three months, I'll have dropped 30 pounds. Okay. I'll be writing more. I'll be reading more. I'll be more productive. I'll be more sociable. I'll feel better about myself. Right. This is the, the problem. Part of the, why this is so hard, why this is, can be so difficult for people is because, um, the early stages of mania, um, feel good for many people. I mean, some for some people, it's literally euphoric, but it also feels real and true. And you just, you do a lot of things better. And that's great until again, like, you know, um, I'm accusing someone of breaking into my bank account and threatening to kill them, which is inevitably where my disease uh, eventually leads. Yeah, well, let me just say a final word I'll mention on this. So I have my uh, grandmother on my father's side uh, was, severely bipolar and um, virtually my whole life she was she was medicated and what I found with her is a similar thing that I'm finding in my conversation with you is that I don't know what the reason is but for whatever reason people who deal with issues like that tend to be some of the most fascinating interesting and, and thoughtful people that there are you know and I compare that to not to be smircher, but the, my grandmother on my other side of my family, just very conventional. And I can't say I've ever had an interesting conversation with her in my life. Whereas my grandmother, mm. who was severely bipolar, open, interesting, honest, thoughtful. And uh, it, it was it was quite something to know her. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, you can understand why it's not hard for me to understand that my life is not under my own control. And that yeah. once I've un once I've understood that to, uh, to understand that, like, there is a social responsibility to take care of all each and every one of us. Very well said and very uh, good way to come full circle on the conversation. Freddie, this is one of my favorite conversations we've had with anyone. I think it was fascinating and gave me a lot to think about, and I'm sure our audience too. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. All right, so that was uh, Freddie DeBoer, DeBauer, DeBoer. DeBoer. Okay, DeBoer, gotcha. <laughs> Sometimes with certain things, I'm, my brain's just like, you can't say that word. Yeah. It just stops me. People have that issue with, with Sagar's name. I can do Sagar's easy. Yeah, but yeah. some people get something else in their head and they have a very hard time. Well, you know my words. Trump called him Sager. Sager. Yeah. Sager. <laughs> just mm. like that, yes. Um, everybody knows mine is rural, which yeah. I sort of nailed it right good. there. Yeah, that was good. I Holla think you got it. your boy. I yeah, I freaked that. Uh, anyway, so Freddie is a really interesting guy. Um, I actually would have liked to... Yeah, only so much of that he would probably want public, but I would have liked to dig even deeper 
with him into the mental health stuff because it's very rare you find somebody who has an issue like that and is phenomenally self-aware about it. Mm. Usually people who have issues like that are in colossal denial. Well, that's about. what he said. I mean, right. he spent decades in denial. Right. So he's mm -hmm. been he's been in denial, you know. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. seen what that looks like too. Fascinating conversation overall though because it it also the way it connected at the end with his struggles with mental health informing his politics about, you know, how many of these things are out of your control. And yes, you have, you know, choices and agency within your life. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do to change your circumstances, but that a just system would recognize the worth and dignity of everybody, regardless of what the market gods say about their market value. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I still don't fully, I mean, I guess my best, um, interpretation of his argument about the left is just like a general hey get your shit together mm -hmm. but yeah in terms of the article when i read through it i was like this isn't put correctly i think there's a lack of distinguishing between some of the i think you just have to be more specific like there are certainly uh issues defund is the classic one where there's no doubt about it you there's a lot of work to do that shouldn't be the thing that you're leading with it's not popular and people would do well to acknowledge that and understand it and have their rhetoric reflect that there are other areas that you could very easily lead with and that would be you know would would do a lot of political good to lean into so to me it just it did what sometimes uh, oftentimes the mainstream media like the James Carvels of the world will do well they'll just paint with a broad brush of like all the left and all the left ideas are unpopular without distinguishing well there's actually there's actually a mixed bag here but he actually did a little bit of the Carvel thing was my point because I'll read the passage again it's time for you oh yeah he doesn't distinguish it's yeah. time for young socialists and progressive Democrats to recognize that our beliefs just might not be popular enough to win elections consistently. It does us no favors to pretend otherwise. What too many young socialists and progressive Democrats don't seem to realize is that it's perfectly possible that the Democratic Party is biased against us, that part is true, uh, and that our beliefs simply aren't very popular. To me, the question is, actually, the majority of the beliefs when it comes to economics and when it comes to foreign policy, the, the majority of the beliefs are very popular Given that fact, why the hell are we not winning? Right. And that's why, to me, I always come back to, well, oh, it's obviously the influence of big money, which has bought the Democratic Party, which makes it so that they have an institutional reason not to pursue any of these things. Right. And also, I mean, again, you can compare to the Republican Party, which runs on an, an agenda to the extent that they even bother to have an agenda um, that they you know, put forward to the American people that is dramatically unpopular. And yet they still manage to win, again, because they have these large moneyed institutional backing them behind them right and at this point i would argue they don't even have a message it's just culture war grievance nonsense. oh 100 yeah. they said they're not even pretending to put out an agenda for the midterm right and they don't need not. to and they're going to win anyway fox news the past day was talking about the fact that their christmas tree was lit on fire and acting like it was the new 9-11 <laughs> like that's all they're talking about it's like okay some idiot did a prank like get over it <laughs> like, oh you want to talk about any of the real problems in the country yeah was it charlie Sa who was it that just had an interview with trump and their question to him was like so did you is it true that you saved christmas <laughs> hold on i want to i want to make sure i'm accurate about who who this moron was that asked that because uh it's something else it was hugh hewitt Oh, Hugh Hewitt. Yeah. He's like he's like the right-wing version of Wolf Blitzer. Nobody has ever given a fuck what Hugh Hewitt has thought about anything. Didn't, didn't MSNBC hire this dude? Yeah, they did to be like, 
we're ideologically balanced. Look at this guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. God, so him and like, I mean, there's so it? many charity cases on <laughs> on mainstream media. Like, um, what's the other guy? The centristy guy that uh, that Smirconish that Obama loved. Oh, and you know he Michael so, Smirconish. He's, Nobody the, cares he's the what one. He says. He's the one filling in for Cuomo now that Cuomo got the boot. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations real. on your on for your real? on your ratings. That's gonna go really well. Oh, over there. that's gonna be devastating. I would literally rather watch paint dry than listen to Hugh Hewitt or Michael Smirconish say anything. They this have is, never had an original thought in their entire lives. This is, a, I mean, just about like Trump was the president and may very well be the president again in the future. And he asked him, he met some guy. He saved Christmas, sir. He met some guy and he says, um, he's telling him about this guy. Hugh Hewitt is telling Trump about this guy that he met. And he says, he said, tell Trump, not only is he the best president ever for Israel, he's the best president for Christmas. He saved Christmas what do you think about that? That was his question. What do you, he, he saved Christmas. What do you think about that? I'm sure here, I'll give my best Trump response. You know, that's it's really wonderful. It's really something. Uh, we did a lot of good things, a lot of good things <laughs> when we were in office. Many people are saying this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's happening now, what's happening now is no good. You see what's going on with the religion and everything. And uh, we'll make sure that we're going to bring it back. <laughs> that's pretty good that's what he would say you have a future in republican party politics yeah i could i could easily if i did the uh the reuben pipeline i, I would oh. be a hit because i could do their arguments better than they could do their arguments they're all fucking morons forget about it they love that i know left, why left the left oh they thing. jerk off to that shit oh, yeah uh, he was endless. on the left now he's on the right uh. <laughs> endless appetite yeah. for that direction anyway that was a great conversation with freddie really enjoyed it have a million more questions we could have asked him but um his book cult of smart i really recommend it's uh it's about education but it really questions some sort of like terrible foundational assumption assumptions in the mythology that enables the current system that we have yeah. um very data based and a lot of research there that made me think another fact that i didn't get to with him that i that i was interested in asking him about is there's also all this like hand-wringing about how our education system is failing and we're falling behind the world and all this stuff. And he points out if the goal is to get more people to go to college, we're succeeding. And this was actually based on a, a Matt Brunig study. Like every generation, more and more people are going to college. So the whole like fetish around, we have to get more people to go to college. Well, you're doing that. But if that's your solution, inequality, obviously it's a complete failure because inequality, even as more people are going to yeah, college, inequality is skyrocketing. Yeah. So it just makes it so obvious that the education fetish that a lot of neoliberals and Republicans have is silly. There it doesn't perhaps, get to the structural There was issue. perhaps a time where it made more sense, but it doesn't anymore. And that's obvious. And, you know, I mean, at Germany, for example, they give you the option, college or trade school. And it's fully paid for. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, now we're talking. You want to give somebody a specific field that they're interested in to learn as a trade, and then they could go off and be uh, successful. I think that's a that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Nobody's or, even having the conversation. In I this mean, this country, we don't even have the conversation about that. Shit. UBI, federal jobs guarantee, that sort of direction to make sure that people, no matter where their intelligence lies and what their interests are and whether the market happens to value it or not, which is completely arbitrary, that they're going to be able to live a good life. Very true. 
All right, guys, uh, we love you. Everybody subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kylan Friends. $5 a month gets you the video of the show and it gets it to you a day early. Um, you could also subscribe on Substack for free and get the uh, audio in your email box as soon as it drops. So we recommend whether you subscribe for the $5 or subscribe for free, we recommend you uh, please subscribe so we can get ahead of people like Barry Weiss. All right, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Love you guys. See you next week.